We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance. We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. <sighs> I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About half-snake, half-human creatures a lot. <laughs> about super hot strangers that show up in bookstores. About gladiator sandals. About living in a small town and not hating it and not loving it and finding your place in it. About those halcyon days of summer. Mm, about having sex by an enchanted lake that maybe's haunted by a duck goddess. <laughs> but most of all, it's that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. ourselves. This week, we are reading... None other than In Charm's Way by Lana Harper. Book four in the series that it's in. <laughs> the Witches of Thistle Grove theory the series. Of, I remember like as we as as I felt it slipping from my memory as well. <laughs> keep that theme in mind. I was like, I remember thinking like now this is a good name for a series because mm-hmm. it's got both of the unifying themes in it. <laughs> I'm kind of sick of people having like series names that are, it's like their B title for their first book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just make your, your official series title something practical. like Yeah, like the name of the town. I yeah. also in keeping with uh, our romanticy. Is very much in keeping with romance. Uh, many series are named for the town that the characters live in. Spindle's Cove yeah. or Spinster's Cove was a Tessa Darrier series. Yeah. The, there's also, you know, the people in the series, the Wallflower series by Lisa mm-hmm. Clayton, I think. <laughs> yep, absolutely. The Bridgertons, the family, to talk about some of the more infamous ones. Mm-hmm. So real quick, the reason we chose this book, uh, you may have noticed we've been talking a lot about romanticy, and that's partially because we've been super into it. <laughs> also, because we are participating in a panel for the Romanticy Literary Genre Festival. So on March 23rd at 11 a.m. at the Otherworld Theater, you can join us, Lana Harper and a bunch of other authors <laughs> to talk about romanticy as a genre. And apparently there will be mimosas. I don't know if they're charging us for them, but good luck sticking us with the bill because we're going to run out of there. But uh, we are going to dine, dash, and dish. <laughs> 
well, the order is going to be <laughs> we're gonna dine, dish. dish, and dash. <laughs> dash. Yeah. That's it. That's the order. <laughs> and that's not a threat. That's a promise. Hmm. Um, but yeah, you can join us on um, March 23rd at 11 a.m. Do you want tickets? Do you want to come? Of course you do. You do. So you got to go to otherworldtheater.org, O-R-G, and get your... To get your tickets. Ticks. So we can hang out in Chicago, Illinois, United States of America. Third largest city, best city. Third largest city, first city when it comes to populace of romance hosts. And alleys. <laughs> and alleys. And it can't stress enough. And it is related. And it is related. It is not a coincidence. It's all related. There, there are no wasted threads here. What's interesting is that this book, perhaps because the author is going to be at this festival with us, has Chicago is malingering on the edges of this story throughout. Yeah, absolutely. At times, I think malingering is the right word. Chicago is the sort of oppressive big city that. Uh, Thistle Grove is in contrast to a sort of stars hollow to the big bad where all the big bad people live. Is it Boston? Yeah, for stars hollow. Is it it Hartford? New York. And then Hartford. It wouldn't be Hartford. And then Hartford's is New York. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, so there's a little bit of a rural urban divide happening. Yeah. In this text. It feels good to be in the Midwest, especially in a Midwest summer. Mm. Okay, before we go any further, I'll read the back of the book so you all know what we're talking about. Perf. A witch struggling to regain what she has lost casts a forbidden spell, only to discover much more than she expected in this enchanting new rom-com by New York Times bestselling author Lana Harper. Nice. Six months after having been hit by a power surge that nearly obliterated her memory, Delilah Harlow is still picking up the pieces. Her once diamond-sharp mind has become shaky and unreliable, and bristly, self-sufficient Delilah is forced to rely on friends, family, and her raven familiar for help. In an effort to reclaim her wits and former independence, she casts a dangerous blood spell meant to harness power with healing capacities. While the spell does restore clarity, it also unexpectedly turns Delilah into an irresistible beacon for the kind of malevolent supernatural creatures that have never before ventured into Thistle Grove. One night, just as things are about to go terribly sideways with a rogue succubus, a mysterious stranger appears in the nick of time to save Delilah's soul. I think you can just say succubus. Yeah. Because I don't think there's, I think the succubus is doing what the succubus does. Yeah. It's not playing against type. Yeah, exactly. You know, like Republican voters. It's, <laughs> it's following its path. Gorgeous, sultry, and as dangerous as the knives she carries, Katrina Quinn is a hunter of monsters, a half-human, half-fae herself. She is the kind of sly and morally gray creature Delilah would normally find horrifying. Though Delilah balks at the idea of a partnership, She has no choice but to roll the dice on their collaboration. As the two delve deeper into the power that underlies Thistle Grove, they uncover not only the town's hidden history, but also a risky attraction that could upend Delilah's entire life. Wah, wah, wah. Uh Uh-oh. 
Where do you want to start? One of the things that jumped uh, out at me, and I want to quickly acknowledge, is that I thought her familiar, her Raven familiar's name was pronounced Multiblon, mm-hmm. like Ricardo Multiblon. That is 100% how I was pronouncing it in my head and also saying it in Ricardo Montalban's voice. Yes. Ricardo <laughs> Montalban. <laughs> Montalban, the raven. <laughs> yeah, that's 100% how it sounds in my head. Um, but it's not. It's named after an actual magic practitioner from history um, and is not pronounced that way because I listened to the audiobook. And uh, I assume, I don't know, people who read audiobooks, I get so much shit for how I mispronounce words, but they're allowed to, like, like they collect a paycheck for it. These kooky pronunciations. Not only kooky pronunciations, because I think Montauban is a perfect pronunciation of the way that this word is spelled for the Raven familiar's name. But like we had this conversation in another romanticy book uh, with the difference between what the, the, not the Striga, but there was like another magical creature that Feyre ran into. And then like. Surreal? Maybe it was the Surreal. And it was pronounced one way in the first audiobook and then the second way in the second <laughs> audiobook with the same narrator, which means that she yeah. had been given notes by the author about pronunciation, which I thought was hilarious because it's all made up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> just give it over. Like, if you're not going to provide the notes to start with on the first book, like, just accept right? it. Like, you gave it. us the pronunciation guide for Feyre. Like, if you're not going to do it for anything else, then, like, we all get to make, we get to live in our own world of make-believe and how these sounds sound. So, Montalban. What's interesting, yeah, to what we were, the slippage was between two historic figures. True. <laughs> and, and we didn't get the reference because we're not, we're not in that chaos magic world. We're in Ricardo Montalban's world. Cinema media studies and nerddom. That's right. That's right. I just think... That actually is super generative because this book, unlike a lot of the books that we've been reading, is actually set in our world. It's like a, it's like another element, like a secret society that exists alongside our mundane existences. But it's still a romanticy. That choice is interesting. And I think the challenges and things that it helps maybe smooth along are fascinating like why would you like why you make that choice and like how it bears out in the actual text I think comparing this to like a court of thorns and roses which has like a map in the beginning or any fantasy novel that has a map in the beginning of the fake make-em-up world kind of belies like a certain amount of like ownership and control that the author wants but they often use terminology you know, you have to rely somewhat on the assumptions and knowledge that you already have. For example, lactic acid, miles, measurements of time, even though all of that could theoretically be radically different in a fantasy setting. But if you like create a magical world that lives un- alongside our mundane existence, you get to rely on all of that stuff because your characters would have the same references as mm-hmm. us. But at the same time, you add in stuff like gladiator sandals. Which also exist in 2007. <laughs> yeah, which somehow makes her a time traveler. Yeah, the gladiator sandals uh. are a weird detail. <laughs> but like, I think what's fun about 
a romanticy like this is that it exists in a space that's both familiar, but like what makes it unique to Lana Harper is like her cast on it, right? So like Buffy the Vampire Slayer works this way. Yeah. And that's all that needs to be said about that. <laughs> the less the better, <laughs> frankly. But like also Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the show worked this way where you've got like mundanes or muggles as it were living amongst and normies, (laughs) Normies. I think is the term in this book. Yeah, right. Uh, Those who have not been red pilled by genetics. (laughs) 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 To see genetically red -red pilled by uh, magic. And to your point, that gives the author uh, a lot of leeway because all the shorthand of the regular world is there. And so then it's just the spice on top. It's like, how do you want to decorate the foam of your cappuccino? I I think it streamlines the process. I think it also speaks to it's got to streamline the process. And I think it also, you know, really tightens up the world building. And maybe you shouldn't go full Tolkien. Also, Tolkien apparently like set. The Hobbit in like our world and like Australia exists. It's just a historic like pre. <laughs> I cannot stress enough that Lord of the Rings is a book written by a linguist who invented a language seeking a story and not the other way around. Like we do yeah. not stress enough that he made up a language for funsies and it was like, let's find a plot. It's like the language came before the plot. Like, yeah, I don't write epic fantasies, but like that isn't how I would do it. No, but it's also like it's that kind of thinking that you sort of need in order to build a whole new universe, I think, successfully. Sure. And he's only semi I mean, he's probably the most successful at it. Sure. By lots of different measures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of this is to say, I think that using the real world and like a pocket universe that lives inside the real world Mm. is one that we're familiar with. It's easy. It's a scaffold, not unlike fan fiction, right? Like if you want to tell a new story, but you want to use the bones, this is a good way to do it because you don't have to front load exposition. You don't have to explain. You don't have to have pronunciation guides. You can really just step into the thing that's different pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like Winter King also had this like lack of grounding details that made it really hard to (laughs) take seriously. And as like whimsical, intentionally whimsical and fun as this story is, there are lots of things like I would say. So her big bad, our main character, Delilah, her big bad is that she had in previous books (laughs) some kind of like memory depleting spell cast on her and she's her family is magical librarians and so carrying knowledge being a living card catalog is crucial to her to say nothing of her like i don't know would you call it a spiritual practice what part of it casting spells kind of it's certainly spiritual for her it's not only part of her like core identity as person but it's like it's centering it's purpose-driven. So yeah, I would say it can function as a spiritual practice. It takes her to a different place. I, I think it's really, yeah, not to diverge too much, but I think considering how magic is treated in these books, and in these books meaning romanticy, it has all of these like religious and spiritual elements, like goddesses. And this book, I think, kind of roots that by it. I think early on it says she lives in like she can't imagine living without the confidence that uh, there's an afterlife, Mm -hmm. which I think really roots this 
practice this magic and how it works in kind of a religiosity. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time distinguishing spirituality from religion because I think it's, (laughs) I think like practice and ceremony and communal celebration is all pretty religious and which is to say i don't think religion is an inherently bad thing i think people have negative well-earned negative associations with it but and that i I don't think calling it spirituality alleviates any of that because cults also (laughs) spirituality yeah and i think you're right i also clocked the because she is so terrified of the oblivion that like that she has this lingering oblivion so in a previous memory loss this memory loss in a previous book someone yeah. cast like a super strong spell as morgan said but it was also ultra powered because this person had been touched by a goddess so like there's divinity there which makes yeah the lingering effects of the spell really strong so delilah will lose track of her thoughts as she's completing a task like trying to open her door with a key she like loses the entire purpose of the key yes. and becomes deeply panicked and terrified I thought that was a really effective way 100%. of like putting us in Delilah's predicament. Yeah. And it was really scary. Like it was scary to read. It was. Um, not the least of which because we are rooted deeply in first person. <laughs> so it's like yeah. even closer than we would have been otherwise. And we have all of Delilah's panic and the sentences are short and punchy and scary. And like her thinking is along those lines. And it's it's a fascinating thing. And absolutely the line about my oblivion would be like, it would be so much worse if I believed that there was nothing else. I was like, yeah, that's an interesting, I think not a throwaway line, but certainly one that isn't explored fully in this text about the way that like the belief structures of this, these particular people function, which is interesting, Mm -hmm. especially because the love interest, Katrina, Kat, there's like a question of like this person's eternity because they're fae, so they're not quite mortal. Yeah. They're half fae. Everybody's favorite. Half fae. Favorite. favorite. Um, but like talk about grounding details. We learn that Kat was raised by an insurance economist, a Michigander, <laughs> and they used Michigander correctly, which like Lana Harper, <laughs> double thumbs up. And like he's the type of, you know, single dad who like drinks brewskis and likes Friday night lights. And I like Mm-hmm. All of those de- all of those details told a really concise and compelling story about Kat's background that I didn't need mm-hmm. anything else. Like her dad's boring, stable, and loving. And like she's mm-hmm. going through all these things in the mundane world where she's being pathologized for her magic with ADHD and psychotic episodes and like uh, oppositional defiance disorder. But all of that can then mm-hmm. be explained by her being half fae. And then her mom shows up when she's 16 and like takes her out of the loving and loving and sort of hapless and boring embrace of her father. And like, that's her Mm -hmm. backstory. And I was like, it's an amazing backstory. I don't need anything else. Like, I don't even care if we meet anybody else. She, she traded a comfort for truth, I guess. Yeah. Even though it was pretty uncomfortable, I guess, being half a, but But her dad loved her different kind that she traded low stakes for high stakes. I think that is so brilliant that our first kind of, we get this like, brief moment when she's looking so the book opens and she's wandering through a forest foraging for a specific type of magical flower and the way the description of being in that forest made me long for summer we are in the grayest dregs of february so we probably should not i should not my mental health could not 
like like the hazy lingering warmth of Sunday of like twilight and and it was it was just like the crickets and the anyways and so she has this brief moment of kind of alienation from herself when she's trying to remember a spell but when I think it's so brilliant to go from like this kind of we talk about stakes too much but this (laughs) low stakes magical whoopsie to this very real something that we live every day and the idea of forgetting what a key is and being alienated from a key is so affecting and effective at causing us to have the right amount of anxiety when she forgets something important Mm -hmm. like a warding spell. And so it really justifies to me, I, you know, surprising no one on this zoom call, I over related to Delilah. (laughs) And when she goes through her ordeal, deal like and makes the decision that she's going to practice blood magic I was like this makes sense Mm -hmm. to me I know why she's out of options Mm -hmm. I understand her sense of panic Mm -hmm. and I also understand her her justification for kind of going it alone and not looping in other people yeah I'd actually like to because I think that's really important I'd like to go to the site of right before she chooses to do the baneful blood magic spell Mm -hmm. where she's working on the spell with the person who obliterated her mind, who is doing a sort of penance atonement as like a part-time worker in the bookshop. In her bookstore. (laughs) Which is like (laughs) such a small town, like elder decision where it's like the person who hurt you will do penance with you. And it's like, obviously this is a combustible environment. Like, (laughs) Who thought this was and Delilah's, good? <laughs> Delilah already doesn't have a personality type that lends itself well to coping. Right. And so then you have this young person, Nina, who made this grievous mistake under the influence of a goddess and just trying her little heart out and like try hard and like a beautiful mini sketch of Nina. I don't need to read Nina's book to understand a lot about her because like that sketch is yeah. really good. They're working on the spell together. And Delilah loses the words as she's working it and like the spell begins to fall apart yeah and nina's like i can take over and she like delilah absolutely cannot have nina take over the spell and become the lead and like have her fingerprints on the spell and so like the spell just totally falls apart all their hours of work are wasted and then delilah like loses her shit and when i was reading it i had a real sense of fear that she was going to attack nina and that there was going to be a scene Mm -hmm. of violence but rather than that and like there's a moment where delilah like is making that choice. And then she just turns the violence onto the store itself. And there's just a scene where she's so frustrated and she's just like weeping and like throwing bottles. And it's like, it's awful. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to read. And like, of course. And then like, she's like, we see her at her lowest point. And I was like, absolutely. Yeah. 100% understood why I'm like, you're not going to tell anyone because you know you're breaking the rules. I totally understand that girl Nina, who you hate, also saw you at your lowest moment. So now you're not even like, <laughs> yeah, can't involve anyone yeah. in that because that humiliation is like petty in comparison to the rest of the things that she's feeling, but is also like fuel in the fire. Yeah, I totally understood why she's like, I need deep blood magic to fix this. Yeah. And I think, you know, for all of the issues that first person narration presents, if you don't have a preference for it, as annoying as it can be sometimes, it really works in this story where Katrina is a mysterious figure who comes in and her first act 
as a character is to be sexy and shopless. Super sexy, just like sex incarnate. <laughs> and then also walks away yeah. with like a shitty tarot deck and you're like, oh, what was that, that about? Just like a klepto? I was like, that's hot. <laughs> <laughs> she's, you know, she's this inherently mysterious figure. And through reading, there is eventually a revelation that Katrina is not who she initially presents herself as. And there's been some finessing and some finagling and some secret goals and wishes after they have made love and fallen in love. Multiple times. <laughs> as we get to Katrina, like... You can feel this the personal problem. Like, you can really identify with all of her, all of Delilah's justifications for carrying on with Kat, even when her ex and slash best friend Ivy is like, I don't know about this. Why she continues on with the relationship. And but you also get those moments of like lack of surety <laughs> from Katrina yourself. It's just very well, it's very well tooled. As far as a rom-com goes, mm -hmm. there's nothing kind of, I think a lot of times writers have ideas that they try to force into a story because it's an interesting concept. And I don't think anything in this book kind of comes across as forced. I think everything is pretty escalating at the correct rate. Even Delilah's insecure, it's not even insecurity, but like whatever that feeling is when you're like falling for someone too fast and too hard mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't reveal this. Or like maybe this thing that I'm telling you about Thistle Grove isn't something I should tell a stranger. Yeah. And like maybe I shouldn't tell you how the wards work. And like all of those like. Those are reasonable things to think, even as she's doing it, which is also a reasonable thing to do because she's like so infatuated with this person. Yeah. Even at her points when she's conflicted, I understood both sides of the conflict. I understood why she was doing all the things that she was doing always. Like I like Lana Harper is deeply in control of the first person narrative. Yeah. The emotional kind of journey of the character is more central than these kind of episodic appearances of cryptid monsters that need to be defeated. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to me, this book reads more structurally as a romance first. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that has come up around Sarah J. Moss's latest series is that no one dies in it. <laughs> it's like, uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> That's not true. Some people die. No one you like dies in it. And is that people are mad about that? Yeah. Fantasy readers feel like fantasy she's, readers. OK, because yeah, romance it, readers wouldn't be mad about that because that's not the expectation. No. I mean, there are, to be honest, too many characters. And so as a romance fan, I also feel like, come on, let's <laughs> let's, let's let's winnow the field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't have this many like goofy, lovable dudes and not like off a couple you, know? you can if you're johanna Lindsay or lisa claypass you just build series around them yeah just yeah exactly but she's not doing that unfortunately yet yet we'll see that's a very good point that's a very good point but yeah, sarah j moss is a young person and i say this as a person who is in spitting distance of that person's age <laughs> she and i toddlers she does. She's got a. She's got a lot of years of uh, writing about Ethan Holstrom, Sunball Captain, ahead of her. But I, I think, um, I think this book kind of lives in that wonderful, cozy pocket of romanticy. And I like that the back of the book calls it a rom com 
because I mm-hmm. think that will set your expectations. Mm-hmm. But once again, I find that I enjoy these books much more when they lean on the structure of a romance novel rather than a fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's really, I care about like the emotional arc of characters a great deal. And if you're not going to be able to, I mean, it's hard to, I don't know. Is it hard to write a good fan, like a little journey, like a little uh, martial epic? Is it hard to write a little one? Yes. Is well, it hard to write a good one with an emotionally satisfying character arc? No. Yeah. I feel like people can do it and have done it. And like, if you're interested in reading some, might I recommend Jennifer Robertson, J.D. Robb. All of them are also women. <laughs> Elizabeth Hayden. They they can write really satisfying character arcs that make sense inside of a martial epic. They just don't gain the same type of traction, especially with male readers. And I think this might be what is like the buttress, like yeah. the 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 thing against it, where it's like there's a there's an idea in fantasy that the emotional growth of characters isn't as important as the politics. Right. You and I would disagree with that. Well, I certainly <laughs> prefer politics. to read about the emotional antics rather than political But I also believe that like politics, right? But politics doesn't function without the human element. Right. It doesn't function without an emotional arc. It doesn't function without the things that drive romance yeah. and so to strip fantasy of those pieces for an audience that like doesn't think it's necessary it's like you guys just watched way too much history channel when it was just like war world II. war ii and the civil war right where it's like all of those people are also making emotional decisions like <laughs> yeah. they're all like heartbreakingly human right and so it's like it's not like it's absent we, that's a lie that like patriarchy tells i think that's actually pretty resonant for talking about delilah because this book is such a a really moving, if I'm honest, it's a very <laughs> moving character study of someone who has like a real villains and heroes view of the world and yeah, a real and becomes this kind of soft. She talks about in kind of the final chapters after this betrayal is revealed that her, what is it? What do insects have it? Her carapace? Carapace? is um shed and now she's just this like Mm -hmm. she's soft and like trying to accept and appreciate your softness what a what a wonderful journey to follow and Mm -hmm. and a a perfect place to end up with a character like this who's going through this thing and i love that the writer when the betrayal is revealed our main character delilah is still like but if i was okay with it would you come back (laughs) like uh like so real it's like almost too so almost too real it hurt to look at but I think it hurt to look at I think you know a lot of people have when it comes to politics this really like it is the most frightening thing about it is probably that it's it's performed by human beings politics are performed by human beings Mm -hmm. who will justify anything Mm -hmm. in order to protect their self image and their self ideation and so maybe that's why people don't like it. It's like way too painful of a truth to face and let alone excavate. And like once you start doing that, you start to see yourself in that puddle, you know, and that's excruciating as well. I think especially for patriarchy people in the, who are, are comforted and bolstered by the patriarchy. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's part of the reason why romance has the reputation that it does. 
especially among male commentators that like it's you know it's just porn or like it's you know it's not important stories because honestly what are the most important stories about anybody that we tell and tell about ourselves it's like those connections that we make I was really surprised Mm -hmm. that the reveal of the betrayal, which you can kind of see coming. Yeah. (laughs) I was surprised that it was revealed the way that it was like, and it, it comes up softly where Delilah tells Kat, I think I'm falling in love with you and I want to know if that's okay, which is like, what a (laughs) amazing and terrible way to imagine being that that hold that you could like say. Oh my God. I want to know if you're okay with me falling in love with you. I'm happy for her though. And then Kat's like, I can't do it. And then what's the thing that she can't do? Betray Delilah. But even before this, there were a couple of moments with Ivy, the ex who's turned best friend, where she's like, you're relying on a stranger because you don't trust the people who love you. You're hurting my feelings because you're shutting me out. And like, there are a couple of like, Mm -hmm. real friend come to Jesus is with Ivy in particular, which because we're in Delilah's perspective, they're like, aimed at you, the reader, which... Like, as a person who's, like, pretty okay with conflict in general, like, I was like, oh, God, it's too much for me, Ivy. Your truth-telling and your love (laughs) is very bright in my heart. Um, Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. There is that, like, projectiness here of modern romance where it's, like, everyone Mm -hmm. here, not everyone, but people are asking permission. People are demonstrating consent but there's something Mm -hmm. people are performing the best version of what it means to be a friend a lover does it but it doesn't come across as like preachy or even like after school special as we call Mm -hmm. it it doesn't um come across that way it just feels like the best version of itself it works as like a clear articulation of what's happening in the story and i think that's what keeps it from being distracting on its own yeah as like, wow, look at how good they are at expressing themselves. Okay, let's are you go. Ready for weirdest part? Let's go. Yeah, I'm always ready. Because my weirdest part has that. Because I think this book was so deft and uh-huh. delicate and well wrought that the big reveal at the end isn't Kat's betrayal. It's that part of the reason why the Oblivion spell, spoiler alert, is still stuck inside of Delilah is because she won't let go Mm -hmm. and forgive Nina. Why is this my weirdest part? (laughs) Well, (laughs) as someone who deeply over-identified with Delilah, I was like, sometimes righteous anger is deserved and you should hold on to it forever. Even if it becomes a splinter dagger in your memory that keeps you from like being whole. It makes sense to me that the blood magic took the nexus and created a like a protective little thing around the barb of your righteous anger and non-forgiveness. And the whole thing is like she has to be in this circle with all these other casters and she is like, now you take on this part and you take on this part and then like her final letting go is like, Nina, I forgive you. And I was like, okay, fine. I get this like Hallmark (laughs) special moment. That was the moment that felt to me like a little too contrived. It was a little too neat. The thing that tipped it over the edge into my weirdest part is that Nina, who has done this thing, she's like, I forgive you too. And I was like, shut up, bitch. It should have like exploded the mansion. They were (laughs) shut up, Nina. (laughs) 
It's like, no, Nina. <laughs> Forgive what, Nina? Forgive what? Nina, this was your fault. We are giving forgiveness to you. It is not yours to give in return. No. You just and received think, yeah. it, Nina. Well, here's here's the thing. So I will say Kat proposes this idea that it's the not forgiving Nina or obliterating her memory that is causing further memory obliteration. And Delilah says that's awfully fairy tale. And Kat said, I know, but it's the only thing that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's also the only thing that makes sense for our journey because the central like conflict is actually between Mm -hmm. Delilah's not even conflict between Delilah and Nina, but conflict between it's Delilah's rage. Yeah, it's Delilah's rage. A hundred percent. I love righteous anger. I would argue it's the only kind of anger I have. (laughs) And it is always righteous because you're always always right. right Exactly. Exactly. The thing about righteous anger is like, what could I struggle with this? What could possibly happen if we can just go to the ourselves part of the podcast? What could possibly what what could Nina have actually done to make up for what she did and what she did not totally like from what is given to us of the past books? Because we tromped right into book four. Sure did. Not entirely intentional on Nina's part, whatever happened. Like, what could she possibly do? Obviously, working in the bookstore is not in any real way going to make up for it. And I'm sure the elders were like, they'll spend time together and learn forgiveness. But like, if you have righteous anger, there's no... Proximity is not going to help. Proximity is not going to help. And it's, I think you just have to decide to let it go because there's nothing that's going, it's very rare that something's going to actually level that playing field. Right. There's nothing that Nina could do. There are no words that she could make. There's no restitution she could do. Right. There's no equivalency. Right. I guess the equivalency would be like, let me do it back to you. How like destructive and unproductive would that be? And just like perpetuating the problem. And so, yeah, you just kind of have to. And so I think that final Nina being like, I forgive you too, is sort of like Delilah's final trial. Like, can she accept? (laughs) (laughs) Can she just fucking deal with hearing that? Like, take it for what it is, which is like a dumb and just be like so good that's such a good take that is 100 such a good take because i was reading it i was like fuck you i was was like are you kidding are you kidding i was but you're right like the real test there is on delilah and it's about and it's ultimately about delilah growing for her own benefit Mm -hmm. and not for anybody else's but everyone Mm -hmm. to be fair everyone in that room is there to help delilah right so it's true. Even Nina. She's got to put up or shut up, I guess. And I think that's an incredibly important <laughs> lesson. Like, there are so many lessons about those of us who, for those of us who use our rage <laughs> as a propellant. And it's it's not that it's not a good propellant, but... It's an excellent propellant. It's just maybe not the most useful or long-term. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard to know when to let go, isn't it? And, like, you know, you don't know... That you've outgrown your hard little carapace exoskeleton until you have, and then you beat up against its outsides, and maybe you're a beautiful cicada about to uncocoon yourself and your brood for the first time in 21 years. Or maybe... And like you're just squishy. A raccoon's gonna eat yeah. you. Maybe a raccoon. You know that's eat the you. risk you take. A raccoon would eat you in your carapace. Absolutely, it would eat you both ways. Mm-hmm. I'm actually like 
to not tie this all together, but as a Midwesterner who felt this book was entirely Midwestern, I'm one of the questions I want to ask Lana Harper at the panel is if she's excited about the the double brood that we're going to get this <laughs> summer. Um, we haven't got, if you don't know and don't live in the Midwest and listen to this podcast, there's going to be a double brood explosion of cicadas that we haven't had since 1804. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited. And one of the most disgusting and controversial takes that we have here at Womance is that we are pro-cicada. We're pro-cicada. Yeah. 100%. They're red, beady eyes. Yeah, we look forward to it. They're weird electricity sound when yeah. they congregate. It's how you know it's like it's like real summer when the cicadas are here. When you were talking about summer at the early part of this episode and you said crickets and I was like, cicadas. Cicada. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't forgive us for liking them. I get it. Okay. I know people don't like yeah. their little husks, their cries, <laughs> their songs. Their mating calls. Yeah. I like it, though. I do, too. It's such a summer sound. Yeah, and it adds such a element of, like, the bizarre. Yeah. Bizarre ambiance. What's your weirdest part? My weirdest part is, I, I want to acknowledge this, because I really appreciate that this story is set contemporaneously, but is a romanticy. Uh, contemporaneously with me fucking you have to tread so lightly with your outfit details Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because things become dated so fast forward and it can be distracting it can be gladiator sandals i was distracted yeah i too was deeply distracted because this person is supposed to be cool and i was like That's the worst part. If someone's supposed to be cool, they have to wear, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to report. They have to wear a black t-shirt, black jeans, and combat boots. That's the only thing cool people in books like this can wear. And it's timeless. Yeah. I At first, I was struck by the fact that our main character was wearing cargo I pants. also was struck by cargo that shorts. detail. Cargo shorts. And then I was like, wow, this is an incredibly butch lesbian. That feels like a weird stereotype <laughs> out the gate. <laughs> But also, like, she's outdoorsy, you know, like that, mm-hmm. that, that works, even if it's, it, it works that she's a little, if, if she's dated, right? And it'll also work if it becomes more fashionable. It won't be distracting. But, you know, a dork can wear whatever. Yeah. A cool person can only wear, and I'm so, I know it sucks, and I know only a Sith deals in absolutes, but I'm being so serious right now. Black t-shirt, black jeans, combat boots. I don't care if it's summertime. That's what makes them cool. Because they don't care that it's summertime. They can't be bothered. Yeah, exactly. They don't even sweat. They don't even sweat. They don't sweat. sweat it, for sure. Yeah, for sure. The other thing is not any fault of the book. And actually, I think the book handles this pretty well. But the experience of, like, walking in on the fourth act is pretty interesting. I think this book was designed to kind of welcome in outsiders, mm-hmm. but I was thinking about the choice to to make a series. that That's once again a romance structure decision, mm-hmm. and so it's quite pleasant. I think this author does a good job of not over-explaining things, but then if I were reading it after having read the first three, would I be like annoyed, as I often am with recaps? It's hard. That's a tricky balance. It is a tricky balance. I've never come into a series on the fourth one and two cards on the table. I picked this one. Amazon had it first in my Kindle store for some reason. And I was like, oh, it's the first one. Let's do it. And then it was the fourth one. And I was like, why was it 
why was it this way in my Kindle store? Anyway, fuck you, Jeff Bezos. But I too felt very <laughs> welcomed in. And I also had the same thought where it's like, yeah, I am usually annoyed at this point in the series to have this over explanation of characters, but it's really good. Is it an over explanation? Maybe it's actually very perfect. It's just not for the person who's been here all along. Yeah. You think so? Yeah. I wish there was a way that everyone could be happy, I guess. <laughs> I mean, that's so hard, especially with so much important backstory. I mean, this book does it really, I think, as well as it can. Yeah. It's hard. It, it, I think romance novels in general do it really well. But a, a huge part of the lift there is that, like, this is a totally different thing. The other people are now pregnant. They're going to show up for five minutes, who you remember from the last book. But the world continues on as is like this is definitely like picking up the pieces of what felt like probably one of the most major events in the series, which always happens after the third book. It's like we can't help ourselves. Trilogies. But I'm starting to really appreciate the existence of fourth mm -hmm. books. They're like their own denouement. Yeah, exactly. Or fifth books, as the case may be. But I think the other kind of benefit that we reap from this is the characters are super well lived in like I'm kind of worried that if I went back to the first one now I'd be like ugh, like it just wouldn't hit as well mm -hmm. whereas like everything here felt very actualized and easy to easy to slip into mm -hmm. because it seemed so lived in already well practiced what was your sexiest part speaking of lived in already I guess it's technically <laughs> their first full sex scene which I know we like always pick but like they go to a magic lake. It's twilight. God, that was going to be mine. Like, what are the shallows uh, of a lake if not an outdoor bathroom? Right? And then they're, like, making out in the water. <laughs> and then they're, like, I want to take your swimsuit off. And then they, like, there's this picnic blanket and fireflies. And it's just, like, ugh. Imagine. You know, kiss me underneath the milky twilight. Lead me on a moonlit 100%. floor. <laughs> Well, that's it, she declared, grinning at me, beads of water clinging mm. to her lips. I had an almost overpowering urge to swim over to her, suck them off her mouth like mm. dewdrops. So good. So good. Like, what is It's full of those, like, kind of tingly details. Yeah, this is an incredibly corporeal book. I think it just does a great job of, of capturing that magic of, a, of summer in the Midwest. I really do. In the Great Lakes region. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You got to come here, y'all. Yeah, it's great. Summer here is off the hook. It's so good. Off the heezy. So sexy. I, w I also want to give an honorable mention to the succubus sex scene, which <laughs> I thought it was like incredibly. I didn't read the back of the book. And so every time someone showed up, I was like, that's the romantic interest. Like I thought it was going to be Nina. I thought it was going to be the succubus. <laughs> I was like, she can change her. <laughs> but I thought it was really, like, really phenomenal to have a sex scene that didn't involve the main romantic interest. I thought that was pretty, I guess she does kind of make a, a, a cameo. But, I and I think that treats sex and sexuality in actually a 21st century kind of way mm -hmm. where it's not this like central achievement it doesn't it's like a, a form of expression absolutely and an activity more than it is like the ultimate seal of love and trust which i think this book you know like does a good job of like balancing it doesn't ever 
throw it in Kat's face that they had sex and she was betraying her. Mm-hmm. Like, sex is not the most important mm-hmm. part of the relationship. It's just a part mm-hmm. of the relationship. Anyway, I thought that was pretty punk rock, pretty cool. It was super cool. <laughs> and it was it was hot as well. As it should be. If a succubus is showing up, go full succubus, you know? Yeah, and she does. And, like, the succubus is so enticing. And like, like, and she's got a little ward candle and the succubus is like, can you invite me in? Can you blow out your candle? And I was like, oh man, the succubus is going to kill you. It's so hot. Also, like, <laughs> there's something about like floating at a window and like her face becomes like fully pressed <laughs> against the glass. Like this idea of being like totally enamored. It's also like focusing on the droplets of water mm-hmm. on another person's lips. Like that kind of like zeroed in focus mm-hmm. was very well conveyed. By this text. Yeah, I think it's been a long time since I've read like an Insta connection. Mm-hmm. And it felt really good to be back there. It gets, <laughs> you know, I think we've been reading like a lot of like friends to lovers or like forced proximity because of political marriages or whatever. And it was just like really nice yeah. to be like, oh, your outsides are hot. I like that. Ooh, and you're <laughs> mysterious. Ooh, and you're doing like, I just, it was so fun. Yeah. And they weren't, like, playing a game Mm -hmm. where they were, like, I don't even think you're cute or whatever. They Mm -hmm. were immediately, like, I will die for you. Yeah. Yeah. Insta-love isn't so bad. (laughs) Mm -mm. It's fizzy. It's fizzy. It's fizzy. And it has, it's it's actually, I feel like Insta-love is is not unrealistic. Yeah. I feel like most people kind of just, like, lock, most of the time you just kind of lock in and become obsessed. And then it's, like... And then that's the slow reveal of like the true human that you're, that you're just like locked in with. <laughs> oh, that ick wasn't visible earlier. <laughs> exactly. It is like a more, it is pretty fascinating if it's done well. Like, as long as they're not like, I love it, like immediate love and then slowly being grossed out is, and having to reconcile being grossed out with the insta love. It's, it's a good. It's fun. Good money if you can make it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> make. Yeah. So is this a romance? Yes. I would say this is a really solid book. It didn't like, you know, it, I guess it did. In a lot of ways, it did kind of blow my emotional doors off. Like it felt a little bit therapeutic. I'm not sure if everyone would get that from this. But yeah, I would say overall it's a romance. I think. For all those reasons that you just said, absolutely. This is going to be, it's a romance for me as well. But like, I almost want to put an asterisk on it because it feels like the emotional trajectory that this book took me on was so much more personal than about the relationship. Yeah. And that feels like a a strange turn. Not quite a romance. Not quite a romance. But like, what is the ultimate romance except learning to love yourself so you can love others better? So like, yeah, it's it's a romance for me. I think it comes with the asterisk that the relationship itself is less paramount than the emotional journey that Delilah goes yeah. on. But I do think the relationship is necessary to her emotional. She has to be kind of cracked open mm-hmm. by a shockingly beautiful person yeah. who likes her back. Because her little small town just like isn't doing it. No. Can you imagine dating in a small town in your 30s? No. No. You've just described misery. Misery or Missouri? Or Missouri. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> so glad I left that state. Oh, man. Well, from the plains to the Great Lakes. Yeah. I think. 
I don't know. Missouri is kind of definitely has this halcyon summer vibe. Absolutely. June in Missouri is beautiful. July and August are terrible. So humid. So humid. As my father would have said, air you can wear. <laughs> it's that true. thick. It's true. It's true. You could cut it with a knife. All right. Well, with that, anything else? I want to give you the floor. Perfect. Should you have. Thank okay. you. Well, with that, I'm going to ask you to loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah! Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted and produced by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. Editing and mixing for this episode was done by Steve Keel. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.